these two patients, the ones that worked, the only pain patients that worked, they have the same kind of pain. And that lady who's coming in now, she has the same thing. So he, he asked her in and she told him about, you know, the pain. And then he just looked at me and, and, and then he looked at her and said, you know what, we have, we, we will have a treatment for you. Um, it's called deep brain stimulation. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome back to Stimulating Brains episode number 27. It was my great pleasure in this episode to talk with Marie Kruger who is the director of the Stereotaxi unit in St. Gallen, Switzerland. So she's leading the deep brain simulation and stereotactic um, surgery program there. But Marie's also on her way to London. She's going to join the team there at UCL in Queen Square as a functional neurosurgeon. Marie trained in Freiburg, Germany um, under Volker Kühnen and Peter Reinacher, and she was instrumental in helping to um, create algorithms to detect um, segmented electrodes together with Peter Reinacher and then also use these segmented electrodes in multiple research projects when these electrodes were still new but also now in very creative ways. For example, one of her key projects currently is to use these segmented electrodes to target three intersecting thalamic nuclei and then to use the steering modality to find out which of the nuclei is best to treat intractable dental pain. When Marie did her fellowship with Chris Honey in Vancouver, she also worked in spasmodic dysphonia. And I think it's really impressive how much experience she has already gathered in actually quite little time. So thanks again for tuning in. Marie Kruger, Stimulating Brains. Marie, it's, it's a great honor and pleasure to, to interview you. Thank you so much for taking the time to um, take part in this. I, I will have more formally introduced you already uh, by now, so we can directly start. And uh, as you probably know, I, I always um, start with an icebreaker question about um, non-scientific things. And I know you will have great answers. So uh, <laughs> any hobbies or things you do when not doing surgery? I don't know if I have a great answer to that, but um, I, I have a very straightforward answer. I think I love everything outdoors and being active outdoors, so hiking, biking, swimming, snowboarding, cross-country skiing in wintertime, anything that gets my body moving and maybe also to get my mind at rest a little bit. So it really helps me to clear my thoughts. And I have this uh, interesting passion for swimming in freezing cold lakes uh, oh, wow. in wintertime. So I've been doing that quite a bit here in Switzerland now. And it always gives me a special thrill. So I enjoy doing stuff like that. Yeah. Is that Everything real like cool. ice? Would you even go, you know, make a hole in the ice? Or did you do that? Um, sometimes not. you kind of have to crack it open a little bit. But then oh, really? I really just, just go in and hang on to something and then climb out. But usually it's a, I usually go to a little bit like a bigger lake where that doesn't freeze. And then you just go in and swim a little bit and go out. And wow. yeah, so... That's uh, uh, maybe a, 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 an uncommon hobby. Yeah. So, so meaning mountains and outdoors. I know you snowboarded a lot. 
in Vancouver. Is that still yeah. a passion? Yeah, yeah, it, it, especially uh, the the funny thing about Switzerland uh, in lockdown was that everything was closed, but all the ski areas were open. Oh. So I did that a lot uh, during lockdown. So you would be in a gondola with 80 people during lockdown, but uh, they they were fine with that. You can't take away the right to ski in Switzerland. So <laughs> that was funny. Great. Yeah. Uh Love that. Okay, so so talking about the, the science and also medicine, um, who were key mentors in your career or turning points, um, you know, to get where you are now? So um, I think I did have a, quite a few mentors and I always underestimated the, the, the importance of mentors just um, until now, actually. Um, and um, I think I had mentors that were or very different mentors at very different stages in my career. And I, I would really like to uh, quote a little, um, like a quote yeah. <laughs> from, from one of my favorite books, um, The, The 1% Rule by uh, Tom Baker. And because when I read that, I thought, well, that, that really, really fits so well. And it goes something like, Mentors come in all um, shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. Some last for a day, some last for a lifetime. What matters is not the duration, but the impact. And that was very true for me and some of the mentors I had. And um, so one of the mentors is certainly um, Peter Reinacher. He's one of these lifetime mentors, I think. He Great. inspired me to uh, do research. He was the first... I think surgeon I met who really was passionate about uh, what he was doing and passionate about research. He, he just made it fun, but at the same time, it was very meaningful, you know, um, then Volker Koenen, he was one of these door openers. He, yeah. he, he opened the door for me, I think, you know, to go to, to Vancouver to do the fellowship, but at the same time, he also encouraged me to go through and he kind of gave me that, feeling that he believed that I could do it when I, I wasn't so sure. So I think that was a very important, yeah, it was one of these turning points in my life as well. Yeah. And then of course, Chris Honey um, in, in Vancouver, where I did the fellowship who just taught me everything about DBS that I know and um, research and, and, and all that. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's so important to have mentors Um And, um, and yeah, I don't, I don't think I would be anywhere close to where I am now without these people. And there are so many more, but I think these were the, the, the key, key ones. people. In did, did you have one that just lasted one day? Like um, from the book? Or the one day. Encounters? <laughs> no, not necessarily just one day, but maybe someone yeah. who did one move, um, yeah. you know, like, um, my English teacher who enabled me to go to Australia, who, who gave me an address. And okay. then uh, I went to Australia and, uh, and, and did, you know, a few months there, which was a big step. And I think it started um, or a lot of things started from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So not, not just one That's day. That's a great example though. Yeah. But so I get the point, right? So, so a single um, incident that, that made a big difference. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure that happens a lot, maybe more than we even realize. Um, going exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. So um, 
You did uh, complete your neurosurgery residency in Freiburg. You mentioned um, Peter Reinacher and Volker Kühn and the two, I think, um, neurosurgeons there. Um, are there more? Like you were there, but was there, was there any, is there anybody else doing functional only in Freiburg currently? So there are now four neurosurgeons, four. Okay. Um, yeah, Bastian Zayans and Nadia Yard. So okay. four neurosurgeons and, and the neurologist, yeah. Great. And then um, we, we both studied in Freiburg. So we, uh, yes. I thought to mention that, that that's what, how, how we met um, first time, uh, indeed, in med school. And um, I, I don't think many people would know this, but for historical reasons, Freiburg and then also Cologne are the only two universities in Germany or university hospitals that have a dedicated chair of stereotaxi, so functional neurosurgery, um, which is more or less um, then independent from the general neurosurgery department. Um, of course, not completely independent, but, you know, it's a, it's a full chair, a professorship and um, a Lehrstuhl, we'd say in German. So um, did this history that Freiburg had, you know, a chair for stereotaxi play a role in your choice to become a functional neurosurgeon or not really? Um, so I think when I was there, I wasn't really aware of that special situation, but maybe indirectly it, it did have an impact because um, it's, it's one of these places uh, or one of the few places where you actually get to see functional neurosurgery, like, like all of it. And um, it definitely helped me to realize that this is what I want to do, um, to have this amount of impact and see its full potential. Um, so indirectly, I think it did make a play a role. But when while I was there, I actually wasn't aware of, okay. of that. <laughs> so so and any other reasons why you chose functional neurosurgery and not say vascular or even um, neurosurgery in general? Um, so, so, uh, so neurosurgery in general, that would take a long time to explain I think or then maybe maybe not I just uh, when I was a, a little like a young girl I had an injury on my foot I couldn't walk anymore when I was 15 and 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 that was such a um, had such an impact on my life to realize how important um, health is so I, I I knew I wanted to become a doctor I, I actually didn't think I was smart enough to do to go into internal medicine or do anything like that. So, and I was always I loved doing stuff with my hands. So I kind of knew I, I would have to become a surgeon. Um, and then I I wasn't good at school at all. I only played soccer my whole childhood. So um, I just had to improve my marks. So I had to sit down and I started reading all, uh, about the brain and how it works to to improve my marks. Oh. And I did that and uh, I got really fascinated by the brain. And so it kind of all came together, um, surgery, brain and all that. So I chose it as a, as a clinical subject uh, in the um, first year of med school. So that's basically how I got into neurosurgery. But then uh, when I, I really like neurosurgery, but then we had to do this rotation into the functional department and we had to i didn't really want to but okay. as soon as i yeah as soon as i was there i i just fell in love with it and and i can't pinpoint it down to one aspect but i think it's functional is a nice combination of neuroanatomy science and very delicate surgery yeah um i also have to admit i like the slower pace 
because general neurosurgery is all about emergencies and everything has to happen at, at the same time. Whereas yeah. in functional, you, you need to take the time to think about the patient and to plan the surgery very well. It's not just yeah. you should, but you have to. Mm, and um, research, I love research. And it's it's basically part of it, right? You can't, I think you can't do functional without research. And then it's, it's just, just, it's just so um, rewarding to be yeah. in the OR, for example, you're in the OR with a tremor patient. That's my favorite indication still. And then you do the surgery and then the tremor just stops. And I don't think I'll ever get tired of that. That's such a fascinating thing. And you know that you, you actually did that and, yes. and, yes. and you did it big. And, and the fact that it was so hard to get there and to learn everything and the fact that you had to go through so much makes it even more rewarding and you know going home and you know you yeah. just changed someone's life for the better i mean what what better job in the world is there right i, I, so. I can i can <laughs> totally dig that i would i would say the same that i I'd never get tired of, of seeing tremor stop with BBS, yeah. but I, I would never be the person to, to have done it so I, I i could totally see why you know that's the extra bit and um uh, I think, in, in fact, Ludwig once mentioned to me, Ludwig Zunzel from London mentioned to me that, you know, he, he got goosebumps in the first OCD patient um, he did, mm. where that's maybe even, I don't know, changing the, the psyche or, um, you know, could, but um, yeah, so so I, I totally understand that. And then also what you said that it took a long time to get there and then actually yes. being do, able to do that. Um, that's cool. So, so I, I guess a few people would also say that, let's say, vascular or tumor surgery or so would always, you know, you do these elaborate things, but then it only lasts a few months. Would that also play a role that you can actually in functional do, you know? Yeah, in a way it does. Yeah, in a okay. way it does. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it's very um, demotivating, to, I, I think, personally, to operate on a patient with a tumor and then you, you find out that he died a few months later. Whereas yeah. the, the, the movement disorder patients, you see them, you know, a lot and, and every and they, they come back and, and not all of them, of course, but yeah. the majority is every time they see you, they're just help, hope, um, thankful and happy. Yeah. And, and the, again, the, the other day I had a tremor patient who, who showed me one of his paintings that he can do again ah, now and, and these things. So it's, it's nice. It's not, we're not, you're not saving lives, but you're, sure. you're, you're, you're improving quality of life. Yeah. And, and that in itself is such, it's just such a rewarding job. I, 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 I just love it. It's, and yeah, I think, these are all the reasons for yeah. it. Enough reasons, definitely. So a, a, a few years back, you, you completed a fellowship with Chris Honey in Vancouver. Um, what, what were the, the, the key highlights um, there? Oh, sorry, sorry. Before, we, before we go into that, I think I, I missed the question. So, so maybe let's talk a bit more about your time in Freiburg. So um, what, you know, what were the key points there? You know, what you, did you learn from Peter and, and Falker? And, um, can you talk a bit about that time of your career first? Um, yeah, like I mentioned before, I think Peter really got me uh, into the research aspect of, of um, neurosurgery. And 
I think one of the greatest projects we did was, you know, we tried to figure out the um, the depiction of the directional electrodes so we could find out how they're rotated. Yeah. And Peter had started to do a lot of work. And then I happened to rotate, in, rotate into the department. And then we continued working on that uh, uh, together a little bit. And, and we came up with this plaster skull that we filled with jelly to have a, a, a realistic brain model. And I remember the two of us, you know, being in his office, filling up this plaster thing with green jelly and then putting it into the CT scanner and the MRI and into the fluoroscopy until, until we finally figured out, or I mean, it was definitely, it was, it was Peter who figured out, you know, how to, how to read it and how to do it. And it, just being part of that um, was, was a lot of fun and it, it's yeah. still it's still important and it still Absolutely. has an impact and yeah. it had such a big impact on my time in Vancouver um, so I learned a lot about directional electrodes there because um, they were new and they did a lot of research on them um, also from Volker Kernan and um, when I went to Vancouver the Canada had just um, they had just got the directional electrodes because they were released later than in Europe yes. So they didn't have any experience with them. So that was a big, like, that was great for me. And and you knowing how us. to, yeah. I came yeah, in, right. that, the, well, the, that was the only thing I knew really. But um, in, we did a few studies and we wouldn't have been able to do the studies if we hadn't um, established the rotational fluoroscopy in Vancouver then. So yeah. that was, so it was like something I learned in Freiburg that I took to Vancouver and then we were able to do a few studies. And I think that was the thing that had the most impact, the directionality and, and depicting it and, and um, yeah, seeing how also how, how Peter approached, you know, these, these questions. And um, yeah, I think that so was. I remember a talk from Peter, I don't know where it was, but but where he showed these videos of the, you know, the rotation of fluoroscopy rotating yep. around the electrode. And you, I think what I took home is that, you know, it might seem as an easy problem if you rotate around the electrode to see it, but since it's always just coplanar, you would, it is a much harder problem. So it sometimes looks as if they were rotated that way, but it's not that easy, right? So can you talk a bit? Yeah, it's yeah. it's not so easy. Well, you have the marker and you have the iron sights, yeah. but it takes it takes a while to to understand how to read the fluoroscopies. Yeah. And now, I mean, now the CT method, I think that has taken over, but it, it's based on the same principle. principle. Um, I think yeah. it was Peter who coined the term iron sight and who kind of uh, I think motivated or inspired the CT the people who were working on yeah. the CT project to use the iron sights as well and put it into their algorithm. So that was kind of the, the base um, that helped to um, get everything um, running then. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so. Well, what, one other thing that's special about Freiburg that, that I always envied also, you know, similar centers like Cologne, that you have all these indications, right? So in Berlin, we essentially only do movement disorders or did uh, when I was there. And, you had, you know, depression, OCD, then of course also the, um, you know, the classical indications. So was that also formative to, to, to be experienced or exposed to, to these projects with the medial forebrain bundle or similar? Oh, things? yeah, yeah. I mean, it was great to be um, in a center where they were so involved in, in the yeah. depression, um, DBS for depression and also um, 
speak to um, Thomas Schlepfer, the psychiatrist, and yeah. it was interesting to see how important it is to have both specialties, you know, uh, a, a neurosurgeon who's really interested in this project or in the in the indication and the psychiatrist. And I think yeah. that's a that's a problem or that's that's what lacking in, in many other places. Um, and uh, yeah, it was great to see you know, they have they do everything there. Yeah. And um, that was certainly very inspiring as well. It was uh, a lot of impact. Uh, yeah. Great point with the psychiatrist, because I think people like Thomas Schleffer or Jens Kuhn in Cologne, who, who left already, are, are so rare, right? In Not only in Germany, but everywhere. I think, remember, Marwan Harris gave, gave a talk where he even showed indirect evidence at some point where the psychiatrist that would engage into functional neurosurgery would be shunned by their peers, you know, not only in Germany, but everywhere. Mm. So that there's even some sort of push, you know, against that. So, and I think that's a, that's a big problem. Um, there's just a, just out, I think, a nature, nature medicine paper now to promote more the OCD um, research yes, and so yes. on. So, so any thoughts about, you know, how, or, or for example, I think um, Marwan would also say that psychiatrists would not go to the surgical conferences and but neurologists yeah. sometimes do i mean they also don't go enough i guess but <laughs> do you have any thoughts about how could we you know foster more or bring these three specialties but especially psychiatry closer together Oh, good, good, uh, good question. Um, so, what I what I did here in Switzerland, we we tried to you know encourage um, psychiatrists to 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 start collaborating on on a project, and and I found it so hard. Okay. Um, they, um, I think we have to go out there and, and tell them, you know, here are the options, and and encourage them to to think about it. I think one thing that might be uh, maybe maybe a key turning point is the high focused ultrasound mm -hmm. so you go to to psychiatrists and you give a talk on dbs for depression and they're like okay that's nice and but you can see in their eyes they don't like these wires they don't like to know they don't like the idea of adjusting the stimulation where they don't have any clue about But then um, at, at the end, I always show, you know, a potential future would be the high focus ultrasound. And, the, and, and, and that really gets them interested mm -hmm. because the idea that they can just send a patient to something that still kind of looks like a non-invasive yeah, treatment, like it. Yeah. Okay. at least it looks like it. I mean, we all know it's not, but, but the patient think it's not. And, uh, and it's not surgery. In the, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, that, it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you send the patient there, they get a treatment. And then you're not stuck with adjusting stimulation and all that. I think that might actually help everyone yeah. just, just to get them interested. And, and I remember, I think it was Andres Lozano who said that since they started with the high-focused ultrasound in Toronto, they also have more patients for DBS because yes. it attracts the patients yeah. to come to the surgeon And, and talk about, you know, is there yeah. something we can do about my, about my condition? And then, and then I think if, you know, when they talk about it and, and you explain the options and also DBS and you show them and maybe you, you give them the number of a patient and they meet and it, they, they realize, you know, oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it is brain surgery, but 
but it, it has such a big impact. Yeah. So I think maybe that will do the trick. Hopefully. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, so the same here, I think, at the Brigham, that, that um, cases certainly didn't go down in DBS. The, the overall case went up by, you know, by exactly. far. Yep. And I'm just giving people choice, you know, is makes yep. it more attractive. They can then, you know, choose. So, so um, one, sorry, sorry that I dwell so much on this topic, but I find it really interesting. And I just interviewed Nolan Williams, who is more in the TMS realm, but what he, he also did a lot in DBS before scientifically. And, and he mentioned that maybe one, you know, thing that needs to happen could even be that we get, a new residency as a brain stimulation doctor, you know, that could potentially even treat across neurology and psychiatry. I mean, certainly not, you know, surgeons do that anyways. You would, you would, um, you wouldn't really care much probably, uh, what, you know, where, what, what disease that the patient has, but, um, or you certainly oh. care, but no, 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 sorry, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said it that way, but, but you would, you would, um, obviously you care, but, but it's, um, the technique is similar. It's what I'm, what I wanted to say. You know, it's not uh, a completely different type of right. surgery or so. That, that's right. what, I, what I wanted to say. And, and I guess um, mirroring that on a on a you know having a brain stimulation or neuromodulation specialty, I at least found it a really interesting concept to to think about. Because um, he said that probably with neurology, and he did both residencies, so he has you know neurology and psychiatry, um, and he, he kind of said that usually you're not fit to treat either of them really well, you know, even mm. as a neurologist, maybe you're not the perfect DBS doctor already or so. But yeah. Any thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah. It sounds, sounds like a good idea for sure. Um, okay. But because uh, you, I know you're going to ask about the fellowship in Vancouver uh, next. And you mentioned that, um, that we don't care about the 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 disease or the indication that much, so we I'm didn't have. I corrected <laughs> okay. myself. No, no, but because we because we didn't have neurologists in Vancouver, so we really had to care about everything, and we had oh. to um, we had to um, we were the ones to set the indication, and um, and that was a great for me as a surgeon to to you know learn how to think like a neurologist and the same with the with the programming so we did all the programming ourselves oh, wow. and um and that was a very i i'm i'm only realizing now that this was a very very special situation yeah and um and helped me very much to to think a little bit more like a neurologist um yeah. and and be just as meticulous about um indication as we are about surgery because I mean you can be the greatest surgeon on the planet if the indication isn't right. Yeah, it won't work. We all know that. So that's so interesting. So so let's talk a bit more about Vancouver now. So you went to work with Chris Honey, I think about a year, a bit more probably, um, to to learn with him, and it was a real fellowship just for functional. Yes. Can you talk a yes. bit more about the general setup, but also if you want to elaborate on that? Made it, you know, why were there no neurologists? Neurologists, and um, I agree, this is a great learning opportunity to broaden. Um, yeah. So, so the general idea of the fellowship was um, basically that there's only one fellow who does everything, but at the same time, of course, you learn everything. So, I like to call it the toughest and the best year of my life. It was certainly. <laughs> challenging it was um because from one day to the next so you're overlapping with the the previous fellow for a month but then you're on your own and and so you i started in um july 
and we were overlapping. And then in August, Chris Honey goes on holidays for a month <laughs> and you're right. in charge for everything. So you'll get all the phone calls and they are looking after 1,500 DBS patients because wow. they're the only center in all of British Columbia. Um, so that's quite a lot. And, and I have to say, I yeah, that was quite challenging. Um, we didn't do surgeries that month, but you had to be there and answer questions. Um, but in general, the idea was that the fellow would really learn everything. His, his um, idea is that he would train a fellow who could then go back to his own country and run a service there okay. and, and not just do the surgery and, you know, get the electrode down there, but be able to set the indication, be able to um, do the surgery, have a look, look, localize the leads, make sure they're in the right spot, program the patients, follow them up, manage every, everything, every emergency. And it, it's just, everything. So it was only functional um, and a little bit of um, what we had to do on calls, but that was it, general neurosurgical on calls. Um, and then we did, a, so, you know, MVDs, um, radiofrequency ablation, chordotomies. Um, so, so, so it was movement disorders and pain and um, these different techniques, but the main focus was certainly on, on DBS. So it was a a very very steep and and, and learning curve, and uh, I was heavily involved in research. Uh, we we worked on I think I, I probably we published ten papers together wow. uh, out of one year, which I think is a is is great. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I got a lot out of it. But like I said, it was it was the toughest year tough. of my life as well. It was also really tough. Yeah. See, see, I, I love the interdisciplinarity of the field, but I could still see how this is, you know, the perfect place for especially a young neurosurgeon maybe to, to learn things because because you you essentially close the loop, right? If you stimulate exactly. the patients, like program the patients later, I guess often the, the typical canonical criticism maybe of a neurologist could be i'm not saying it is but could be to the neurosurgeon that you know they put the electrode down there and then they close up and they are done with the case right right which is also often not true i know but but that could be the, the criticism and, and then you know you kind of never get the real feedback like long-term feedback yeah. of, you know did you do a good job even, right so if the neurologist is not transparent or it's just not it's not all from one hand but it seems like there in, in Vancouver you had that opportunity to do the programming and so on so so you also took care of one 1500 patients really did the programming there um as well so, like, so, yeah. so they, they have three dbs nurses and now yeah. they're getting a fourth one because it's just getting bigger and bigger yeah um and um i, I and so i could sit in with them and uh, and learn how to do the programming. And yeah. um, I did a lot of programming with the directional electrodes uh, for the study patients as well. Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah, it was a, it was great um, to have this closed loop. Yeah. And 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 when I came to to St. Gallen, I, I actually said, you know, I, I, I insisted on having this closed loop mm -hmm. um, because I, I ran the functional um, program there and I, I'm, I wasn't the only functional surgeon so um i i thought i had to make sure that what i'm doing is right so yeah. I, i i wanted to see every patient before we were we still always discuss every patient in our meeting um and only if everyone agrees you know this is what we want to do 
Well, we go for it. I plan my sur the surgery. I, I look at the post-op fusion, and then I insist on seeing every patient at least once, if not twice, to see what what is the result. And I, I have a little book where I write down, you know, special things. Oh, this was a little, you know, this electrode was a little bit more lateral. Yeah. Let's see if if that worked. And and I think that really helped me for to to get better and better. Yeah. And also, yeah, to make sure that, you know, what I'm doing is is right. Um, and I personally think that's the way you should do it. I, um, But I know there are centers where the surgeon is only there to do the surgery. Yeah. I guess it works. But, I mean, we've, we, we spoke about, about it um, before that it, it's really, I think, the best situation is when you have a passionate neurosurgeon who understands the neurological side and when you have a neurologist who's also interested in you know where is the lead yeah where you yeah. know and and also wants to see the result of the surgery and is not just programming in the dark so absolutely yeah it, it I, goes both ways i totally agree and i i did um sit in all the plannings in berlin at the time there um myself just out of interest and, and i think over time you know they 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 became a bit more interested in my opinion as well so it, you know it, it, it um yeah just yeah. became a multidisciplinary thing. Obviously, the surgeon had the last word. He would, you know, then go ahead and do the do the surgery. But I think that is truly the way to go. But of course, it's a often a resources question, right? You would it's additional time that you. Um, you're, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I'm like in the perfect world. I think that's how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Okay, so so um, speaking a bit about science, so together with the team in Vancouver, you worked on a prospective randomized double-blind crossover trial on thalamic deep brain stimulation for spasmodic dysphonia. It's not not your you know own big story, which we'll come to, but I think it's the big story of Chris Honey a bit, or at least one of yeah, his um, yeah. stories. So could you tell us a bit about what spasmodic dysphonia even is, and um, a bit about the findings of the study? Yeah, so um, spasmodic dysphonia is a neurological disorder that affects the speech and the voice of patient. Um, it's also called um, laryngeal dystonia, mm -hmm. and it causes the vocal folds to contract involuntarily. So patients would speak like this, right? Mm -hmm. So they they just they always the, the vocal folds always shut. Um, although they don't want that, and it's really hard for them to speak properly. Um, and so, yeah, it was Chris Honey who found that um, VIM-DBS is a treatment for spasmodic dysphonia. And um, since you mentioned it, I, I, I think the, the most hilarious thing about it is the story on how he found how, out about it. I mean, do, do you know okay. how... I don't so, know. Okay, so I have to I have to tell it because it's I, and I love hearing it from him because he 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 it, it's nice to hear it from him. You'll have to hear it from me now. So he said, you know, they operated on patients with tremor uh, mm -hmm. who also have SD. So about five percent of tremor patients have SD as well, and they just did their VIM DBS for the tremor, and then the patients came back and they would go, oh yeah, so my tremor has improved so much and also my sd is gone i didn't know that was part of the deal but great thank you so much <laughs> and he would go and he said so oh you know what i didn't know it was part of the deal either and i didn't even know what sd was so um he kind of realized that um by treating the tremor uh, with the vim stimulation you could mm -hmm. treat something called spasmodic dysphonia so he kind of read up on it then and then i think he, he made a very 
well, the right, he, ra- he made the right thing. He um, took a spasmodic dysphonia patient and um, without and tremor. The, without tremor. Yeah. And, and the big question, and, and uh, you look at the literature, so there were very, very few case reports on it. But no one actually went the next or did the next step. Yeah. So the the question is, you know, it's it's a dystonia in a way. So yeah. you would you would think the target is the GPI, right, and not necessarily the VIM. Um, so they they uh, took a patient and they implanted an electrode coming from very anterior, um, having one contact in the VOA which has okay. palatal yeah. input, yeah. and then one um, one contact in the VIM with uh, with uh, cerebellar input, and um, they they just again found that the VIM is the better target. Interesting. Um, and then they then then he said, you know what, we need we need to do a little trial, and so they did this trial, a crossover, randomized, blinded on six patients with purely SD, and um, did a unilateral VIM. Uh, left left vim for right-handed patients because he also found that um, it it looks like um, the speech dominant brain hemisphere in right-handed patients gives patients the most benefit for their um, for their um, SD and then yeah the patients really uh, uh, improved and the quality of life improved and uh, now they're working on the next bigger trial so very exciting. Very cool. Yeah. So, so I would have, that's what I would have thought, you know, the VOA, um, you know, maybe it was just, yeah, but you, you checked for that or he, he checked for that. So that's really interesting. Any other mechanistic thoughts about why cerebellar input? Do, do you know what the thoughts are or is it currently just? I, I so it, it's just work. So yeah. for me, it's just working. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't put. I know Chris Chrisani has thought about it a lot, so I'm I'm sure he has some answers to that. But for me, it's it's just working. I actually yeah. operated on on three patients in Switzerland, and yep, yeah, it, it works in German too. So yeah. cool, <laughs> it works in German too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you 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 also in one study compared bilateral um, and unilateral stimulation in two patients. Mm-hmm. So that I think you already alluded to that. Yep. Yep. So, so, so I th- uh, before he designed the study and, and, um, but there were, so there were a few patients with both uh, tremor and SD who had bilateral VIM stimulation. And then uh, we did a little trial on, on those uh, two patients actually was, were two, one was right-handed and the left VIM stimulation gave um, that lady the most benefit. And the other guy was left-handed and the right uh, Vim gave that patient the most benefit. Ultimately, both sides were, you know, actually the best. But it was very subtle that additional benefit. So, um, yeah, still uh, also not quite sure whether we should go bilateral or unilateral. Um, but um, yeah, so but they're doing a lot of research on on, on all these things now. I guess a bit more your your own story or one of your key stories is also as we already did, um, talked about directional electrodes. It seems just looking over your publications, you you worked a lot with that, um, starting with Peter Reinach, but then also um, you know in 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 your work on on pain that will come to. Um, I I think you you did also um, compare tremor and quality of life in patients with essential tremor before and after replacing their standard DBS. So the um, omnidirectional system with a directional electrode system. That is quite rare, right? That you would pull out the electrode and put a new one in. So I guess you use these patients as an opportunity to study that, right? If I'm 
Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was a study um, that I ran when I was in, in Vancouver. So the basic idea again was was from Chris Honey, but then he he let me do it because he realized I knew a lot about the the, the uh, direction electrodes. Uh, but the the basic idea is was or was um, we had a, a subset, or we all have them. You know, the tremor patients that do great initially with the ring mode and then after two or three years the tremor progresses and you just can't get the tremor under control anymore um so we were looking for a solution for those patients and um, by that time the first papers on directional electrodes had already come out and they all showed theoretical benefits like you know a wider therapeutic window um no superiority in terms of clinical benefits but these were all newly implanted patients. So we, we thought, you know, if, if you have the possibility to steer away from a side effect um, and you have an advanced patient, maybe it'll make a difference in those patients. So we, we chose these six patients um, and, yeah, literally took out the electrodes, the old ones, and sl slided down the new electrodes down the same path. Um, and then we, um, yeah, compared to tremor before and after and found um, a significant improvement with the directionality. Um, it was, it was 20% in the end, but it did make an, make an impact for, for most of them, like uh, especially in their quality of life. And would you say it was because you could essentially, you know, ramp up the voltage more without side effects? Yeah. Can you, so in, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was basically what we did is we put most of them on very funky um, bipolar settings that we like to call them. And we um, and we steered into the ventral part of the vim away from the capsule, which would get you a side effect. Yeah. And then below the vim in the PSA or zona inserter or whatever you want to call it. But you can shape the field. You can make like an S shape and steer away from what we think is the, are the ataxia fibers um, and because that's the biggest problem that they get ataxic and then you we ramped them up up to six seven milliamps uh, on bipolar settings and and that did the trick it took us a while to figure that out um, but we tried everything with with them and um, I think we in our paper we also have a, a little <laughs> um, image on how long it took us to program these patients and I think the first patient was like 16 hours or something mm -hmm. so we spend a lot of time with these patients the problem that, was that we could didn't be the, could be the confounder yeah. right that you probably didn't take as much time before or it, well they they had tried to get them better over yeah. years and years sure. and and then there's only so much you can do with these standard sure. electrodes and 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 that's the problem of the directional electrodes that you have so many options now and we didn't have imaging back then we didn't have um and we were not allowed to use any images which made it so difficult for us and um which i think um, was yeah wasn't easy <laughs> we we learned so you know we 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 gave boston scientific our settings when once we had fi finished the trial and then they came up with these weirdly shaped uh, vtas uh, and mm -hmm. then we were like oh wow okay we didn't we weren't aware of what we were doing there but you know we found out clinically and uh, but now i actually um, when we have um, challenge and tremor patients um it takes me 10 minutes to get them really good because I know I want to create that shape and I plug them to this, these uh, funky directional settings and, and it really works. So it's, it's pretty cool. That's, that's so, amazing. So yeah, that, that should certainly be, if it's published, if you show that um, S shape thing somewhere, that should be a good read for people. Yeah. 
Yeah, true, true. We, we should definitely do that. Yeah. So, so um, it brings me to the next topic that, you know, you, you also looked a lot in, into imaging and, and one key, if you know, you, you have these electro directional electrodes and then, you know, they of course make it much more complex to, to um, stimulate. And that's why reconstructing them is, is much more important. So the technique that Peter Reinacher came up and, and also the CT based methods um, is so important. What's similarly important and you looked at would be like, let's say, let's say you do the fluoroscopy, you know how they are shaped, but would they still turn afterwards, right? There could be right. some tension probably in the wire and then maybe over some months they would still turn by, let's say 30 degrees. And I think you had a study that looked into that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because that was the big question that came up once we had figured out how to um, depict the orientation. Um, a lot of surgeons had the, the feeling, you know, that they, would continue to rotate. Um, and we looked into that um, in our study here in, in St. Gallen, um, where I think we looked at 32 electrodes, where we compared the intraoperative X-ray, where we tried to hit the iron side and the marker anterior. So we knew that these were really anteriorly facing electrodes. And then we had a look at the CT scan immediately after the surgery. And in some, we had longer follow-ups as well. And we actually found that they did not turn. So, um, but it really depends on the surgical technique. So um, if, you, if you give them a lot of twist, um, they might actually turn. Uh, and we just use the standard locking mechanism from Boston Scientific, and I'm sure the Medtronic one will work just as, as good. But there are some centers um, that use cement and, uh, and a plate. And, and so I don't know if, you know, if that is as yeah. stable as, as using the, the locking devices, but ultimately, um, and that's what all the other studies found as well. So there are quite a few publications on that now. Um, it's not quite sure what happens within the first 24 hours. That really depends on the amount of twist you give and, and the surgical technique, but after 24 hours, nothing really happens anymore. Yeah. And I think that was an important, um, important finding um, for, for us because, you know, we needed to know um, if you can trust the orientation uh, when you do a study. So um, perhaps the, the scientific concept that you currently stand most for um, could be your work on DBS for dental pain, where, again, you use directional electrodes in, in a very creative way in the thalamus. Could you walk us a bit through that concept? Um, yes, yeah, so I actually, I think I have to start with um, or to tell you how we came up with this whole idea. And um, that was again in, in Vancouver. Um, so Chris Honey did surgery on patients with, with pain. But when I went there and I asked him about it, he actually said he doesn't really believe in it. Okay. But um, I, I encountered two patients where it had actually worked. And one patient was a patient who got a battery infection, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. so we needed to leave her off her stimulation for six months. And I got to know her very well because she was, you know, with us for quite a while. And she had all, and, and I, I only knew that she had facial pain, you know, that's, yeah. that's what they labeled her as facial pain. And then Chris Honey always told me, or not always, he told me a story about one patient that he could never forget. And that was a lady. Again, he said she had some sort of facial pain. He did a Vim, uh, sorry, he did a, um, a VPM DBS on her and it helped a lot. But then at some point the electrode broke and he wanted to take out the system. The pain had come back. 
and he pulled out the, the electrode and he caused the bleed. Mm-hmm. And she woke up with a hemiparesis. Oh. But the first thing she said was, my pain is gone. Wow. And she, so she got her, her motor functions back after like a day or two, but this, the pain stayed away. And she, ever since then is a hundred percent pain-free. Wow. So I thought that's really interesting. So I, I, I thought I was, I was starting to get curious about the kind of facial pain they had. So I, I, I looked into their charts and then I realized that they both had the same kind of pain and it was neuropathic dental pain. They both had the same story with going to the dentist who did, you know, some sort of root canal treatment. And then after a few weeks, they got this constant burning pain and so on. And the funny thing is, so I, you know, I remember that moment. I was like, oh, wow, they had the same kind of pain. Uh, but this, the funny thing is it was, it was on a, a clinic day. So that day we had, we, we had a patient walk through the door who had exactly the same story. And I, I, I went uh, before she, she came in, I went to, to Chris and, and Honey and said, you know, these two patients, the ones that work, the only pain patients that worked, they have the same kind of pain. And that lady was coming mm-hmm. in now. She has the same thing. So he, he asked her in and she told him about, you know, the pain. And then he just looked at me and, and, and then he looked at her and said, you know what, we have, we, we'll have a treatment for you. Um, it's called deep brain stimulation. And so um, that was the beginning of it. But then when she had left, we were like, okay, but now where do we put the electrode, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I asked the previous fellow, Josue, who who's really very good in, with imaging, to localize the lead and the lesion. And it wasn't easy. One patient only had a CT. The other images were very old. So we found that the that it was somewhere in one of the three nuclei the um, anterior pulvinar the vpm so the sensory um, thalamic nucleus or the central medium the cm yeah and so we thought and and they just look like um, like triangles next to each other so i looked at them and i thought hmm, should we put three electrodes in or i kind of re- recognized that pattern and i thought oh well that looks like you know, why don't we just put a directional electrode in and then just steer into each one of them? Yeah. And um, so I, I I drew everything and then went to Krishani and, and, and said, look, that's, I think we should do that. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, okay, let's do it. That, okay. You know, sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Um, and, and so we did. And we did a, a blinded study uh, on her. We put her on each of the settings for two weeks. Um, and it was so the we, we saw the best effect with this um, stimulation in the VPM with some co-stimulation in the CM. Uh, but the, the moment I started to believe was when we put her on the off setting. And she called the next day to tell us, you know what, I don't like that setting. My, my pain is back. Okay. And so we realized, you know, okay, that it really works and it's reproducible. And so um, that's when I got really excited about it. I still am excited thinking yeah. about it. So we operated on another patient and she, it also works on her. And then uh, we thought we should come up with a prospective trial. And we've actually, um, we almost started it. But um, now that I'm um, going to London, we're going to um, do it in London now. So it's a little bit on hold, but um, yeah. 
we we already yeah well we've already spoken about that uh, this is going to be one of the first projects that i'm going to tackle there so very excited about it really cool and you you still you still think it is kind of special specific to dental pain or to that you know specific subform of facial pain or would would you say we don't know yet so um, we don't know yet on the one hand. On the other hand, I think it kind of makes sense um, that it's the, so the CM and the VPM in the literature are the, the nuclei that are the ones that have been targeted with pain the most, you know, so we did a whole literature search and all that. And there is quite quite a lot of evidence that CM or VPM stimulation works. Now in the thalamus, you have like this homunculus and the the oral part is the most medial part. And so it it happens to be very close to the CM. And I think this is kind of the probably the magic thing about it or the, the good thing about it, the reason why it's working so well, because you have this, this um, sensory input from probably from the teeth and the mouth in that corner where you can co-stimulate the CM, which also seems to be a good target. Um, so maybe that is that is why it's working so well. And if you the further out you go. The further yeah. lateral you have to place your electrode and the further away you get from the CM and you will probably also cause, you know, other sensory problems and, and, and so on. So I'm, I, I, I've, you know, thought about this a lot, but I think this could be one of the, the key the reasons. reasons why, why it's working so well, because, you know, they have different inputs. The CM yeah. is, is almost affecting is like more the emotional uh, um, pathway than, than the sensory one. So I think the combination is probably very good. But that's exactly what we want to study now and need to study. I think we need to make the next step now. And I guess, you know, that that if if you, if, you, if the story is or, or the reason is it's really in this sweet spot between the three nuclei. I mean, I again I find it so creative and brilliant to to use that opportunity of the triangles with directional electrodes. You know, it makes so much sense. But one one question probably with you know, my, my um, eyes I would have is you need to find that intersection point, right? So if you, let's say, if by accident you'd be in the CM or, you know, then you can steer mm -hmm. all the way. So how Absolutely. did you, how did you do that with, you know? Yeah. So, so I, again, I used Hosway and his, his knowledge about tractography. And mm -hmm. um, so we got really um, very high um Dense, like very good uh, MRIs with um, DTI data, and then Hosway, um, um, you know, ran all these uh, calculations, and he was able to to depict the the nuclei based cool. on tractography. Um, I think he used lead DBS as well, and and every you know all these tricks that you do. I don't know much about it. I just yeah. uh, have to trust him. But he obviously hit it right. And so he segmented the nuclei based on tractography and then send us the images. So he, he was in, I don't know, New York at that time. So he sent it over and then we um, based our planning on, on, on this localization. Amazing. Uh, but, but, but you're absolutely right. That's the next point. So I'm, I'm so excited as you know, I'm going to London and I'll have Harith Akram there yeah. as well. And, and similar Hosway hero. And, and, yeah. Is, Super. Yeah. So Great. it's um, and, and Hosway is still we're still collaborating on on, on yeah. stuff. So so I think that's a key key point to to make sure that um, you can well localize these nuclei as as good as you can. Right? Yeah, that's great. I, I think um, yeah. So 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 speaking again about this creative way of you know targeting three nuclei in the thalamus. Do you think 
There could be other indications where this could play a role. What comes to mind, obviously, is Tourette's with, you know, CMPF, Y intersection that, that was described, you know, would that make sense as well? Or do you see other indications where we could use the same concept to um, find out? I, I, I think I haven't really, I don't have a, a specific idea where I would, you know, whether I'm about to, to do it. Um, but I think, you know, the companies are working on these um, 16 contact electrodes or the longer yeah. electrodes, the ones where you have directionality in the lowest and the most upper contact as well. And I think that I would love to use one of those in Tremor. And and go even deeper into the sonar inserter and further up in the in the in the uh, VIM. Uh, you could probably do a dual targeting of VOA and uh, VIM and uh, and all these these areas for for the stonic tremor. Um, you well, it's it you know it's it has all been done with the standard leads, but I think the the direct electrodes do give us more opportunities there. Um, I would really have to think about that a little longer. Mm. But I'm sure yeah. there there will be other um, indications or other yeah. areas in the brain where they will become very useful. And since so you very mentioned since you mentioned VOA and and VIM, you know, you could even think about Parkinson's potentially targeting VOA for the like the hypokinetic symptoms, and then tremor in the VIM um, because you, you don't get them so close side by side. Uh, probably anywhere else. I'm, I'm, I should think about this more before I <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. keep talking. So, so, but, but it's certainly a very, you know, exciting concept. And then um, I guess, again, segues into the next big thing that I think you're really interested in um, uh, is imaging, you know, using like image-guided DBS. And um, you mentioned Corsi um, Abesilas Chazin. Um, I hope I pronounced the name correctly, but I'm a big fan of his work as well. He's um, as you say, one of the maybe um, makes probably the most beautiful tractography images in the field, or you know, one of them at least. Um, don't want to hurt anybody else, but but I think he's you know he's using I think MR tricks has these very high you know um, resolution um, uh, pictures there. So so and, and did a lot of cool work. So I did I did not even get that he was the fellow before you with Chris Honey, but I know he was you know all over the place and um, been in contact with him a bit as well. So uh, I, th I think there was also, together with him, um, I remember there was a study in JNS this year where you looked at optimal sweet spots and tracks for essential tremor as well. Going into that same you know, direction, but with imaging, what did you find there? Yeah, so these were actually our tremor patients from the study where we had exchanged the electrodes. So um, we... So, so we found that we were able to give, give them better tremor control, but now we wanted to, to see what are we actually stimulating? What makes the difference? So we, um, or he, I have to say, he simulated the VTAs of the standard electrodes and the VTAs of these funky directional setting electrodes. Um, and um, then we, we basically found that they were both stimulating the cerebellothalamic tract but that the directional settings um, also stimulated the pallidofugal pathways, oh. um, which is a bit, which is not what you would have thought, right? Or not what you would have thought of at first, at least. Um, also, um, we were able to stimulate deeper. 
So, um, and, and I think that that also makes a difference. And, and with the directionality, I think you can steer away from a taxi a little bit or mm. definitely better than without directionality. So, um, yeah, so we, we stimulated a, an additional pathway with them. And um, I think that's a, a nice explanation on, on, on what, why we um, achieved what we achieved uh, in those patients. Very interesting. And I did not realize that because you, you said you would not have thought that, but I guess Rick Helmick would have thought it, right? With the dimmer switch <laughs> model with, um, so see, I think see, uh, the, the, the idea there is to, if, if I'm correct, that, that, you know, um, basal ganglia input essentially switches to tremor on or off and then the cerebellar input um, codes more for the intensity of the tremor. I might confuse the two, I'm not 100% sure, but right. So there it would make a lot of sense that And you have tremor response in the GPI, right? Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, I'm not even yep. surprised, but it, it's great okay. that you that you showed that, and um, I didn't realize it. So very mm. cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, yeah, I, I did interrupt you though. So did you? Um, what you no, no. I think okay. I think that was that was all I wanted to say about okay. that. Following up on the uh, image guided um, story, you also worked with companies to look into like evaluated segmentations of thalamic nuclei that, that are um, made by, by software such as BrainLab and others, or probably BrainLab mainly. Um, would you think, uh, would you conclude that currently the currently available software, let's not speak about a single manufacturer, but you know, what is on there is, is, you know, helpful as a neurosurgeon or helpful post-op for programming or not helpful at all? <laughs> no, I think it's, it, it is definitely helpful, but you really have to be careful. Um, you need to understand its limits. And um, so the first thing, the segmentation, I think no matter which, what software we're using, It isn't. You need to be aware. It's not a hundred percent. And in in and in when you do the targeting, you know we, we're targeting on a below one millimeter level. So I always do my planning without the the, the <laughs> colorful images, but I like to switch them on. Yeah. Um, and and then it sometimes gets me to think. So the best example is always the the. Tremor. I do uh, coordinate-based tremor targeting, um, and I don't have images where I really see the v the vim. There, there are some now. Um, I'm eager to use them, but at the moment I'm not. And then sometimes the software would show me a very asymmetrical vim local localization. And then if mm -hmm. you zoom out and you look a little bit closer at the anatomy, you realize, oh yeah, that patient has a very asymmetrical anatomy. Yeah. And then like the, you look at the, the red nucleus and it's really two millimeters off. Um, and then I, 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 and now I just, my um, simulation we actually published on that case. One of the cases was the first one where it was so made such a big difference. And now I adjust my, um, my planning based on that. I mean, you can see it without the, the, the colorful images, but it's much easier to see. And it, it, so it always makes me think. Um, also in SDN, if I'm, if I'm completely somewhere else, I, I have another look. But I always trust my, my um, you know, raw data planning. Um, I, the, the one thing you have to keep in mind is that it can only be as good as the images that you feed yeah. It, you know, if you put in crappy images, you you can't expect anything uh, anything good. Um, and then I think it's it's really great for programming. It's it's 
it, you know, you can see the anatomy, you can see the relation of the nuclei and the fiber tracts and everything. So um, I, I like to, to look at these images um, with the neurologist when they have a challenging patient. We sit down together, we look at the, the anatomy, or I, I do programs, some patients myself, um, when, when there's a specific question like, you know, capsule side effect, you look at the image you have the, you localize the electrode you know the orientation it literally takes you 5 seconds to program that patient or reprogram that patient which would have taken you ages if you had to do it yeah. black box trial and error clinical testing so that i really love it for that and it doesn't it doesn't matter you know if the electrode is 1 millimeter two, or if if the, yeah. the sdn is segmented a little bit wrong all you need to know is in you know in relation to the sdn or to the electrode where is the capsule what yeah. contact is facing the capsule what is steering away from it so which one do i have to use and and also the depth of of the whole thing so yeah. i always um like like to uh, adjust the software or the the um, segmentation based on what we found intraoperatively so that is a bit time demanding i have to admit <laughs> but um i i i, I I really like it, and um, I think it's worth putting in the effort, yeah. and it it really helps with it. Because so that, yep. that, that's the that's the one key point that you said that you know even if these models are not hundred percent accurate, maybe a millimeter here or there off. A millimeter can be a lot, right? Still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, they they might be really helpful if it's just about you know making it easier to create a three D image in our head, you know, about the scene. So I totally agree with that. We. We, we just um, published a software for intraoperative visualization where the microelectrodes are, where, you know, you have the um, microelectrode recordings and then the anatomy. And I, I said the same thing all the time, like as somebody that did microelectrode recordings in the OR, it can just be helpful to, you know, roughly know, am I still in the striatum or, you know, is this the gap or, you know, am, am I, you know, already in the pallidum and, um, and so having that additional like even if it were not 100% accurate it would help yeah. me to get you know um but uh you, yeah. you know we published on that with uh we did a exactly published on something like that with uh, the team in Freiburg with Peter it was Peter's idea Great. to do it, to do it um you know to have the images um in on the screen I while we're going down Great and point. And, and we did cite that study, I'm sure. So oh, okay. I, I, I've yeah, seen yeah. it. So, yeah, absolutely. I so, didn't make the connection now, and, but yeah. And we, we and we what we found was essentially, I mean, if for the experienced uh, members of the team, and I wasn't experienced at that time, they thought it it was nice, but it wasn't really helpful because they still yeah. went uh, did did what they always did. But for me as a young resident, um, it was so helpful for the neurologists. I think it was so helpful. And it was really great because we could really discuss about what was happening and what was going on. Yeah. So I think it's a great teaching tool and it helps to put everyone on the same page. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I guess I, the only issue was it was really, it took a lot of time to set up, but I'm sure yeah. they have, there might be quicker mechanisms now. And then it's a really great, great addition uh, into the so, OR. So if, if we spin this further, so, you know, you, you have BrainLab now that gives you the segmentations, but I've just spoken two days ago with um, a young neurosurgeon at BU Medical Center here in Boston, uh, name is Pratik Rohatki. And he uses a software um, by Pierre de Hayes, who's also uh, behind the cranial vault um, software that apparently gives him uh, a target. You know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's essentially apparently using the same 
idea to instead of saying this is the anatomy it would give you the sweet spot and he also said he didn't trust it but he still always looks at it right so yeah yeah would that be would you agree would that be you know probably you wouldn't trust it but would it well, be well a, you I, I wouldn't trust it until I've um, studied it. You know, yeah. I, I, I mean, you you cannot trust these kind of things. But um, but if I think what would be great if you could feed your own data into it, and if you have your own speed spot to feed it into yeah. into the planning. But I know I think they're working on on stuff like that. Yeah, but, yeah, but coming, it's yeah. yeah, it's coming. It's very exciting. But I would never trust something like that. But I I would love to to prove that it's it's correct and then yeah uh, and then you can use it and and feed it into everything um yeah for sure great marie we just met in in boston where i learned that you also are about to leave uh, st gallen where you currently had um the stereotaxi uh, program and you're uh, as you mentioned you're about to move to london and that's really exciting and um you also already mentioned that you'll work on mr guided focused ultrasound that that um um, I think one reason you were in Boston was to also look at the setup by Reese uh, Cosgrove here at the center at the Brigham. And um, I'm sure you have great plans. I mean, you know, <laughs> such London is such a, you know, it's a cradle of stereotaxy maybe in Europe. So it must be very exciting. Can you tell us a bit more about, you know, what, what you plan, you know, what are the next things? I, a few things you already mentioned, but beyond that. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm also very, uh, I'm very excited. I mean, um, I'm, I'm so much looking forward to working with the great team there with Ludwig and Harris and, and I mean, Patricia Limazar, <laughs> so yeah. it will be next door. It's just, it's just amazing. And um, yeah, so we went to Boston because London has just, um, they just got the high focus ultrasound installed and we wanted to, to see how someone with a lot of experience like Reese. Uh, Cosgrove um, uh, does it, and um, now we're we're going to start with the um, tremor patients in in London, uh, obviously. Um, but of course, we have other plans as well, um, the, and and they are really not very concrete yet. But like I mentioned before, we are all hoping that the high focus ultrasound might um, be. Um, a good way to treat patients like psychiatric patients mm -hmm. um, and might actually make it a little bit more or easable, easier to, to get these patients interested in having surgery or not surgery or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, and I personally, I, I can't wait uh, until I found the sweet spot for dental pain and can make a lesion because I really think lesions and pain go very well. So, mm -hmm. and then the, the nice thing about the high focus ultrasound is that you can do these randomized uh, studies where you, um, or these sham control studies where you put them into the machine, but you don't turn it on. And then next time you turn it on or the other way around. And so yeah. it, it, it's because the biggest problem with pain obviously is the placebo effect and, uh, and also the lesion effect uh, when you put in an electrode and all that. So, so I think it gives us uh, new opportunities to work on, on other indications outside of tremor, which obviously is, is a very good indication for, for focused yeah. ultrasound. Great, exciting and, times. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. And then we have a whole bunch of other things that we're going to work on with DBS, of course. But uh, sure. we don't. Have, I don't think we have the time to go into all of that. Watch this place. Yeah, we 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 we'll yeah. see. Um, so so let's maybe briefly hear your executive summary about lesions versus versus DBS. What 
what will mm. MRI guided focused ultrasound bring or, you know, um, in general lesions versus the brain simulation? Um, so for me, I think it's, it's more like a complementary therapy rather than um, you have to choose one over the other. I don't think it's com competitive. It'll, it'll allow us to tailor the, the, um, the therapy a little bit more down to the patient. Um, both, obviously both therapies have their cos and pros, uh, cos, pros and cons. Um, and I think it's, it's, the responsibility of the surgeon to know about about them and and present them to the patient so they can choose whatever they feel is best for them and of course to maybe give recommendations um, about what you would what you think so I would always I mean if a bilateral uh, or um, yeah tremor very strong on both sides young patient I would still you know go for DBS but older patients very unilateral. I think uh, high-focused ultrasound is a is a great therapy, and and it, you know it brings me back to the same to, to what we said before. Uh, you have patients coming in now and asking for high-focused ultrasound because they heard that there is this non-invasive method of treating their tremor, and they would have never dared to come in to ask for a D DBS. Yeah. But there, there are patients, and 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 you know if they want uh, focused ultrasound, we're happy to to send them to Zurich to have it. But a lot of them are actually um, um, ch make change their mind and, and say, oh, yeah, but DBS, that does sound like it has some advantages. Uh, and obviously, the biggest advantage is that you're not making a burning a hole in the brain and uh, you're not uh, um, you. Everything is reversible. You know, mm. the, I think the amount of side effects that you get with focused ultrasound is still quite high. Yeah. Um, and um, bilateral lesions are you know, um, not really, or we're not quite sure if we should do that, or the, yeah. the data isn't too, we don't have enough data on it yet. So um, I think, yeah, there's, there are reasons to go for DBS and there are reasons to go for focused ultrasound, but it gives us, it's just another nice tool um, to have. But I mean, if we're, if we're honest, it's nothing, but it, it's, it's just a radio frequency ablation, but it just sounds yeah. so much better. It's just, and I mean, I, I guess that, that that was also the question you still answered that, you know, it is um, even the classical lesions, you know, they, um, DBS is more forgiving, I guess. You can adjust more, you can, it's more reversible and so on. Lesions are more permanent, but then uh, I guess Marwan Harris always says they, DBS gives you the umbilical cord. You're, you're tied to your neuro neurologist afterwards, right? And the yeah, lesions yeah. would be a one and done um, thing. So, so I like how you see it, you know, um, another tool and uh, that's great. So um, more choices, I guess, always good. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, there are a lot of patients who just don't want to have wires in their brain and who don't yeah. want to be controlled by, by a machine or by a neurologist. So I totally understand that um, some patients would want to prefer to have to have the, the lesion. Yeah. Yeah. So let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. I know we, we ha have taken a lot of your time already, but so you can, if you want to answer as brief as you, you, you can, yeah. um, uh, can you tell us about some Eureka moments that you may have had in your career? So I think I mentioned one already. I think it was that moment when I realized these two pain patients had exactly the same kind of pain 
Yeah. And when I saw the pattern and that we could put a directional electrode in. And, and then the next one, when this lady called and she said on her offsetting, my pain is back. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I think this, is, actually, this is really working. Awesome. <laughs> so that, that's just, um, I think, I, I, I'm sure there were a few more, but that's the one that really got stuck in my head. Cool. Did you ever think this was a complete waste of my time? Actually, I don't think I ever thought that. Um, I think I'm always, I was always able to get to see something good in everything. And I always try to, to, to live that way, you know, to yeah. always see the sunny side in everything. So, no, I don't think I've ever, well, but maybe a say. movie <laughs> and where I, did, yeah. I just thought, okay, yeah, let's just leave. Yeah. I, I've actually left the, 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 the cinema, the cinema. Um, but uh, yeah. But, but since we talked about like like academic success, did you have ever like failures or things where you said, oh, oh this yeah. did not yeah, work out? Absolutely, absolutely. But but you know what? I think my failures were the failures are the the, the things that you learn most of. And yeah. and I I wouldn't say I embrace failures. It's not like I'm working yeah. towards having a failure. But I've really learned to 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 be really okay with with having a failure, and and you need failures to move forward. Yeah. Um, you just need to draw the right conclusion, and and it's always hard if something didn't work, and you've you've put so much time and effort in it. But but I I think if you sit down and you think about it and you draw the right conclusions. I could actually, I think we can spend a whole episode talking about my <laughs> failures that have then turned out to become success, really. So, no, I think, um, I don't think I would ever look at the failure as something that wasn't, was a waste of time. It was Great. important. Yeah. What do you think about the general field, a future of the field of neuromodulation? What will happen? What will come? What are the next big things? Oh wow! I think it's very bright, and I I can't wait to see what's going to come. Um, I think the next things will be closed loop and sensing. I can't wait to see you know what we can do with all that. Um, I'm I'm also excited to see the next models of directional electrodes. Um, can't wait to see what we do with the focused ultrasound imaging what's coming from that end uh, all the software they're they're improving the softwares and, and everything so i i i'm i'm very excited to see what's coming but i i have no idea it's just Super. so much is happening but it's great it's an it's an exciting field uh, at the time i think uh, i agree do, do you see missed opportunities or things we should be taking as a field but are not i think that's that's something we've already um talked about like we should collaborate more with other specialties like psychiatrists, pain specialists, mm. uh, because, you know, the most challenging thing and the reason why I think maybe the, the DBS or the therapy isn't working that well is that it's, they're really difficult patients. And, um, you know, we've learned who of the Parkinson population are the 10% that you can help with a DBS, but who of the pain patients are the 10%, who of the psychiatric patients are the 10%. And we can't do that without, you know, the specialists in that field who are dedicated to, to try to phenotype them. And, and I think, I think we haven't done enough there. And also I think we need more prospective studies and I, I wish it wasn't that expensive and, and tedious and so much hard work and would take so long 
to to you know all the bureaucratic um, hurdles that you have to take um but i i do think especially again for pain we need to to prove in studies that what we think is working is actually working yeah. Yeah. any advice for young researchers entering neuromodulation as a field of surgery I think I think if you chose that, uh, if you chose neuromodulation, you're in the right spot. If it's something you really want to do, I mean, within neurosurgery at least, I think um, functional is is the the very or has a bright future, and a lot is happening. It's very exciting. Um, I think also as a woman, um, it's it's very elective. So um, if someone, if you've made it that far, and to know that this is what you want go you know go ahead yeah. do it it's just getting there that's the problem <laughs> that's the problem maybe do you have advice especially for women entering neurosurgery or science yeah so, um i i so i think you need to to be aware that it's it's the residency is very tough um and um that you really have to be sure if you really want to do it. Um, and and um, so for me, it was, I had to learn who I am first and what I really want in life. Um, and then, then I think when I kind of got a good idea of, of what that is, um, I realized that functional neurosurgery was what I want to do. Um, and then everything is easy after that. Um, I, I don't think, I don't want to disencourage anyone to do neurosurgery but you really have to want it yeah. and you really have to be ready to to suffer <laughs> and um, kind of have to enjoy suffering a little bit uh, or not just a little bit um and and you have to be aware that you know you have to ask yourself do you want to have a family or not um and then but there are ways to make it happen and it's it is possible in within neurosurgery it's just not maybe the most obvious um, uh, way, but mm. I think I truly believe if you if you really want to do it, if that's what you want, you need to do it. You will not be happy, and then the opportunities will come, and and the way will present itself. Yeah. And and I kind of feel like this is what happened in my life. Um, I always listened to my gut um, when it came to the big decisions. And although I wanted to do neurosurgery, and I couldn't see a way of doing neurosurgery because I, I definitely also want to have a family. Um, I never saw it, but I always followed my heart and, and listened to my gut feeling. And now it, I think I have found a way where ultimately I can have both in functional neurosurgery and be very happy, um, you know, in my daily life, and, life. Yeah. And yeah. the job. Um, so, but, but you have to, I think you have to be very honest to yourself and, and, and if, if you feel like, you know, if you do it because your parents think you should become a doctor, stop right here, stop, mm -hmm. turn around, do something else. If you do it because you think you can make good money, I mean, go, go into uh, computer stuff and, and other things. Um, but if you feel, if your heart tells you that this is what you want to do, do it and, and life will find a way for you. Great words. Love that. So um, is there something uh, you would love for somebody to work on, but you yourself lack the time? So something you think this should be done? I, I think it was really, it would be great if, if we could find not just symptomatic control, but like disease modifying 
um, or, you know, if you could go into more disease modifying um, therapies, so gene therapy and all these kind of things. So this is something that I just, I just don't have the knowledge and I don't have the education. Or you just want early retirement to get, get you out of your job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. Uh, I never thought about that. Okay, I I take it back. <laughs> let's let's. No. no, no, no! Don't worry, it won't happen. <laughs> no, I mean, no, you I are young. No, but, it would be. Um, there will be other diseases, and yeah. No, I I would happily retire if if someone found uh, found the cure for for all these diseases. You know, no, no. I, yeah. But I think this is something I would really love to see happening, and at least that we get a little bit, like uh, some idea. Uh, and that we can treat treat the cause rather than just the symptoms. And um, um, I hope that there are clever people out there who are working on on that. I'm sure there are. But this is something I think is super interesting. But I, it's just nothing that I think I can ever do. So, mm. yeah. Great. Anything else um, you would like to talk about? Or would have loved to cover. I know we covered a lot, but um, anything else before we stop? No, I think I think we we really covered a lot. Enough it, it, was time, a, yes. it was a great. I it was a very great honor to be part of this and a great pleasure. The honor is um, mine. Thank you, thank you so much once more. This was really thank amazing. You. Um, thank you for sharing your wisdom and uh, <laughs> taking the time. <laughs>